Hey, good morning, Trinity Heights. It's good to be with you, even if only from a distance. Um, I miss you guys. It sounds like in this season, you've been looking at the theme of exile in scripture um, in light of kind of the season we're in. And Stephen has asked me to teach on the book of Ezra this morning and in specifically to highlight the idea of incomplete exile that we've begun to be restored and renewed as God's people. And yet there is this tension in the Christian life between what God has already done and what is not yet accomplished or implemented and what we're still waiting for and kind of the the liminal in-between tension and space that we often find ourselves in as God's people and how we navigate that and especially in a season like this right now I think we feel it more than usual and so I encourage you um, to turn to the book of Ezra there's uh, there's not much time this morning to cover all of this story I believe next week you're going to be looking at Nehemiah, which uh, which is actually originally one book along with Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah are originally one story, one book. They were only kind of separated later on. And I encourage you to maybe even spend time this coming week reading both Ezra and Nehemiah together um, from front to back, both in light of what we're going to look at this morning, but also in preparation for looking at Nehemiah more in depth next week. <coughs> I'm going to um, start just by reading a couple of passages from Ezra very briefly, then giving a bit of an overview of just kind of the structure of the book, because there's just not time to read much of it out loud, and then move towards kind of walking through the, the, the kind of lessons and the kind of themes that are relevant for us today. So if you have the book of Ezra open, I encourage you to just read along with me the first four verses of chapter one, and then we're going to jump ahead to chapter nine and read part of Ezra's great prayer there. In Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, the book begins by saying, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the prophet, the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and he also put it in writing. And this is what the proclamation said that Cyrus wrote and sent out. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord. The God of Israel he is the God who is in Jerusalem, and let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with animals, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And so again, I would imagine that, that you as a church have been talking about some of this historical background in, in weeks before this, but, but just in case, um, Israel has been in exile in Babylon for many years and decades at this point. And, and that wasn't just the beginning of the crisis and disaster for Israel, but first there was Assyria, and, and of course much earlier in the story there was Egypt, after Assyria there was Babylon, and the book of Ezra takes place at the beginning around 539, 538 BC, which you don't need to memorize for a for a test or a theology quiz later on, but but the only th reason that's significant is that Cyrus, king of Persia, um, had basically been instrumental in destroying and defeating the Babylonian Empire, and not only is that the empire that had oppressed 
and enslave the people of God for so long, which so many of the prophets and other historical books of the Old Testament focus on, but had also become, and in the book of Ezra, as well as many other places, regularly ascribes this to God's providence, to God's sovereignty, but had also become much more favorable to Israel and the people of God and had actually allowed them, as we read right here, not only to return to their homes and to go back to Israel, but even to begin rebuilding the temple that Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon had destroyed so much earlier. And so when you begin to read the book of Ezra, you get this sense of, of expectation, of excitement. Not only is the worst of the crisis, the disaster over, but there's even this sense of a possibility with new beginnings, and we're coming home. Even this pagan foreign king has not only set us free in some real way, but is even encouraging us, empowering us, even giving us resources to go back and rebuild the temple of God, to rebuild Jerusalem, to start over again. It's a time of new beginnings. And yet, while that never is denied in the rest of the book of Ezra, the rest of the book also makes clear that those new beginnings were tempered by regular opposition, regular from the outside, from others, regular unfaithfulness and, and, and struggles with sin and injustice within the people of God, and, and, and with a, a regular sense of wondering why isn't God working more obviously, more quickly, because it just seems like it's time to kind of put the pedal to the metal for this crappy season to be over and for us to just kind of get back to things being the way they're supposed to be. But even though things are turning in that direction, it's a slow process. And, and, and I don't need to say this, but I will, is there's just so many obvious parallels with our own situation. A season of crisis, a season of catastrophe, a season of frustration, a season where it seems so much of our world has fallen apart and we wonder when is a new beginning coming? When are things going to get back to normal? And, and again, not just in this season, but in general, we see it in First Peter and Hebrews in the New Testament everywhere where we are always a people of exile as the body of Christ, whether we know it or not. We are always a people who on the one hand have already been liberated by God to become his people, and yet who are homeless, who are on the margins, or at least we should be, who are not in control of what happens in the world, and who are regularly wondering when God is going to finally and fully fulfill his purposes, we're always a people who are caught in the middle, in between. Um, and so the book of Ezra has so much relevance. Jumping ahead to chapter 9, this is the other passage I'll read, um, and, and then I'll just back up and I'll kind of connect the dots a bit of what's happened in between chapter 1 and chapter 9. But starting in chapter 9, verse 3, it's one of the great prayers of the Old Testament, and I want to read starting in verse 3. Um, it says, it, and this is from Ezra's perspective, as soon as I had heard this, and, and this refers to just kind of a report that even though God has been gracious to his people, and even though Israel has been able to return to the land, that there's still idolatry and injustice and unfaithfulness even within God's people. And Ezra is outraged, he's shocked, he's discouraged that, that Israel has still not woken up, that the people of God are still um, complacent and self-centered and, um, and, and flaky and hypocritical, even though God has just manifested his own faithfulness in such undeniable in obvious ways, and in response to the discouragement, the revelation that God's people are filled with compromise, filled with unfaithfulness, Ezra says, as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak 
and I pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled, and then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn. I fell upon my knees and I spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O oh my God, I am ashamed and I blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hands of the kings, plural, it's been multiple empires, multiple kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor, grace has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place so that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are still slaves. The exile is not fully over, even though we've come home and we're beginning to rebuild the temple. And yet, even though we're still slaves, it's also true that our God has not forsaken us in our slavery. He's here, he's with us, he's at work. Again, you can feel the tension. We're slaves, and yet God hasn't abandoned us. God has begun to fulfill his promises. He's brought us home, and yet we're still slaves. That you can't emphasize one side of this to the exclusion of the other. And so much hangs on getting this tension and this balance right. And so... Even though we are still slaves, verse 9, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but he has extended to us his steadfast love, his loyal love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of, it is a land that is impure, with the impurity of all the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end, with their uncleanness. Therefore do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong, and eat the good of the land, and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds, and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this today, shall we break your commandments now that you're at work, now that you've brought us home again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations, which echoes the story of Moses much earlier, Solomon, were intermarrying and mixing with the peoples around Israel has regularly caught them up in idolatry and injustice in conforming to the sin and the evil that's in the world. And it goes on, would you not, O God, be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor anyone to escape? We need to learn our lesson is what Ezra is praying. O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, righteous, 
for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. And behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. So just real quickly, it, as you maybe read the book of Ezra this coming week, along with Nehemiah, the book of Ezra's structure is actually pretty simple. There's chapters 1 through 6, and that's one part of the book. And then there's chapters 7 through 10, and that's the second movement. In general, for all the differences and in, in all the, the, the different directions that the book of Ezra goes in, chapters 1 through 6, which I read the beginning of, is focused on as the people of Israel come back to the land, as the exile, not fully, but, but in some real sense, begins to come to a close, and a new beginning is laid by God for Israel, is they come back to the land of Israel, to Jerusalem, and they begin to rebuild the temple. That's the main focus of chapters 1 through 6, restoral renewal, um, kind of rebuilding what's been lost, what's been broken, what's been destroyed in the crisis, in the disaster of the previous decades and even century. Chapter 7 through 10 move away from the temple and rebuilding it more towards the law that God gave to Moses long ago, which would, as we obey it as God's people, would, would basically constitute what it looks like to reflect God's image and to bear God's image faithfully in the midst of a world that doesn't know him, in the midst of a fallen unjust humanity that no longer looks like its maker, that the people of God are called, set apart to walk in obedience and faithfulness to this law, which itself will be the primary way that they are distinct, that we are different from the world, the society, the culture around us. And in chapter 7 through 10, through Ezra's leadership, this is really where Ezra comes into his own as a character. He continues to show up in Nehemiah later on. He, he doesn't really make any appearance in chapters 1 through 6. That's even before he's born or at least before he's doing ministry. Other leaders are focused on in chapters 1 through 6. Is Ezra begins instructing the people in the law, and there's all kinds of symbolic gestures towards um, Israel taking their covenant relationship with God seriously again. And again, because Ezra is not a complete book by itself, you really can't fully grasp what's going on in Ezra until you also move on and, and read Nehemiah and, and, and kind of grapple with that. And, and I'm sure you'll do that next week. But for now, um, maybe the most obvious question before I make a couple of points about Ezra is, is why even bother with this book? And, and I'll be honest, um, when Stephen assigned this to me or asked me to preach on this, I didn't groan or anything like that. But, but to be honest, this is not one of my favorite parts of the Old Testament in my own life historically. These kinds of books where so much of, of our understanding of them depends on an obscure historical background, names and dates and figures and cultural realities that are really far away from us and foreign and just feel irrelevant. Um, I love the Psalms. I love Genesis and Exodus. I love um, the prophets, but, but these kinds of historical books, Ezra, Nehemiah, First and Second Chronicles, these have never been high on my list. And, and so for me, just to be honest, I struggle with what is the relevance of, of these stories in scripture for us today? And I've already kind of alluded to this. I think there's a dozen reasons, if not more, that these books are powerful and have an ongoing relevance for us. But two that come to mind in this season in particular, both for you as a congregation, as a community, studying this theme of exile in scripture, but also in light of COVID-19 and the crisis that, that we've been walking through as a people, as a country, as a world, for the last six months at this point, and, and probably for quite a while after this, is one, 
is that, as I mentioned earlier, that the New Testament makes clear that not just in some situations, not just right now with COVID-19, but always in all times and places, we misunderstand our identity as God's people and we fail to be faithful to our mission in the world if we don't understand who we are and what we are called to through the lens and through the framework of exile. If we don't understand that this is not our home, that we are not in charge, that God has begun to set us free and begun to bring us into uh, a relationship of grace and flourishing with him, and yet so much remains broken, there's a very real sense in which we can also say, like Ezra in chapter 9, we are still slaves and we are still waiting for the fullness of your redemption, not because God is slow or unfaithful, but because of our own unfaithfulness, that we don't fully bear Jesus's image yet, that that the metaphor, the, the framework of exile is always relevant. And to be honest, and, and I'm sure we'll talk about this a bit later, if only for a moment, but in a cultural and political context like we have, both in America today, as well as in kind of Western society for many centuries, is we have, as Christians, and I say this broadly, but I think there's a lot of truth to this, we have gotten into a really bad habit for a long time of expecting that we're supposed to be in charge, of expecting that if we just pray enough, if we just do what we're supposed to, that the fullness of God's kingdom can come here and now, and that the ambiguity the brokenness, the not-yetness of the Christian life can be ignored, overcome, even dissolved and moved past. And the reality is that in every time, every place, every age, we are a homeless people. We are a people of exile who are not in charge, who are not living in God's kingdom fully yet, and who are waiting for what God is still to do in the future, and who are in the midst of crisis and disaster, whether we're aware of it or not. And so especially given our, our to be honest, kind of awful track record in Western Christianity of forgetting or even ignoring this theme, and instead thinking that the real story for us is like Assyria, like Babylon, like Egypt, like Rome, we now as the church are supposed to be in charge, and we can implement God's will through coercion, through politics, through violence. There's a long, awful negative track record that the Western church has on these issues, and not just because we're diminishing an influence, which we have been for a while, and almost certainly will continue to diminish, in a worldly sense, our cultural influence as the body of Christ in this country, and in probably the Western world in general, that nonetheless, it's always true that we are a people of exile. And so these stories have so much relevance for us for understanding what God wants from us and what our response to our situation should be. The second reason that I think that, that Ezra, at least for now, is so relevant is that Ezra is all about um, having strategies that are faithful and wise for responding to crisis, for responding to a sense of being out of control, to responding to a sense of everything not being the way it's supposed to be. And that's a feeling that I would imagine we've all gotten a whole lot more familiar with in the last six months, and that almost all of us are aware that apart from some unlikely miracle and intervention will continue to be the framework the circumstances in which we live our lives moving forward. It's a season of crisis. It's a season of loss. It's a season in which what we had before has not completely 
but in significant ways been taken away from us and we now live a, a kind of diminished existence, at least in the way we experience it. And Ezra is all about how we live in the midst of crisis and, and, and kind of understand what God is doing in the midst of it. And so with all of that said, here are just three points I want to make about the story of Ezra in light of exile, the theme of exile, in light of our own crisis today, and in terms of strategies for responding to and coping with crisis. And, and let me just mention them real quick, and then I'll spend just a couple of minutes on each one. The first thing... I, there's many more lessons, many more themes in Ezra than just this, but here are the three I'm going to focus on the um, this morning. The first one is this, is in the midst of a present here and now, whether in Ezra or for us today, where the main thing we wake up to every day that we left to ourselves will obsess with, that we will become overwhelmed by, and that we will begin pouring all of our energy, all of our focus, all of our emotional anxiety and fear and desire and, and, and passion into is the uncertainty of the future. Just even think about in this season how often, if you're anything like me, you just find yourself constantly wondering, what's next week going to look like? What's what's next year going to look like? What's the economy going to look like? What's society going to look like? What's going to happen in the, in the election in November? What's going to happen here? What's going to happen there? And the uncertainty of the future when in the present there's crisis, threatens always to become the dominant, even tyrannical kind of sense of urgency that we give everything about us to. And in the book of Ezra, there is this incredibly counterintuitive move that Ezra and the other leaders um, in the people of God, and in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah actually takes place over the course of about a hundred years. And so one of the great things about these two books, which again are one book together, is not only the importance of leaders giving guidance and vision and teaching to the people of God, but even more than that, that any given moment, any given, even generation, can't be understood for the people of God in isolation from what came before and what's coming after. But, but there's a sense in which to live faithfully here and now, we need to understand our lives, our stories, even our whole community in light of the longer story of those who came before us, those who are coming after us. And, and so for this first point, that in the midst of a present here and now, where the uncertainty of the future threatens, left to ourselves to just become the dominant obsessive focus is the book of Ezra reminds us that central to what it means to be the people of God is to remember our past, to remember God's faithfulness in the past, to remember even our own sin and injustice and complicity and evil in the past, in spite of which God is still faithful to us, has not given up on us, and to strive to make sure that right now, here and now in the present, that we are walking as a people in continuity with the past, in continuity with the traditions that have been given to us through God's prophets and apostles, through scripture, through church history, or, or to put it this way, to make sure that we're being faithful to our family heritage and to our family tree. That's not to say that there's no ways in which we can't be different from Christians before us culturally and in other ways, but it does mean that in the midst of all the upheaval that we need to make sure that we're not forgetting our story that we're not forgetting where we come from, that we're not letting the uncertainty of the future um, cloud and overshadow the, the brightness, the clarity, the meaning and significance of the past. 
And so remembering the past is a central strategy in the book of Ezra for coping with and responding to disaster in the present. Let me just mention a couple of ways that's true. Not only do they return to the land where they used to live, which again, that's their past in the beginning, but they begin rebuilding Jerusalem. They begin renewing and restoring the temple where God will once again, at some point in the near future, be present, where sacrifices can be made again where um, kind of priests can minister to the people, where God dwells with his people, um, that, that, that these things are rebuilt. They don't move on to something else. They don't say, well, that was just the past, and, and but now, you know, we're in a different time. Let, let's kind of relate to God in a different way. Instead, they seek to walk in continuity with how God has revealed himself in the past and what he's been doing among his people. In the second half of the book of Ezra, as I already mentioned, that, that Ezra turns back to the law of Moses. He turns back to how God has revealed his will, to the moral vision God has given his people in distinction from the moral vision of the culture around them. And, and, and they're called to be faithful to it. I know I'm jumping ahead a bit and I don't want to steal anybody's thunder for next week, but in the book of Nehemiah, there's going to be this really interesting symbolic scene where after they all come back to the land and after the temple and the walls are rebuilt, they actually just all kind of go outside of the city, bizarrely enough, and kind of live in booths and tents for a period of time, which might seem random unless you remember Israel's past when after God had redeemed Israel from Egypt in the Exodus story and freed them from slavery, they spent 40 years in the wilderness on the move, having to live in mobile tents in mobile um, booze rather than having homes later on in the promised land. And so in Nehemiah, there's again a reminder that we can't lose touch with our past. We can't lose contact with who we were because who we were is still who we are called to be today, even if the shape of that has some different nuances today. And even in the prayer in Ezra 9, the great prayer later on in Nehemiah 9, so much of the prayer is focused on remembering and recounting what God has done in the past. And so real quick, just, just one quick um, kind of implication, and I don't at all want to be legalistic about this, but I would guess that almost all of us have a lot more brain space, a lot more heart space going towards being anxious or daydreaming about the future and its uncertainty than we do about remembering the past. I encourage you to be intentional in this season, and, and to be honest, ultimately, always, in every season of life, to take intentionally a few minutes every day, five minutes, 10 minutes every day, and to intentionally, consciously choose to remember what God has done in the past, both in your life in the past, even in Trinity Heights past over the last five, six years, but also kind of not just in your own micro story, but also on a more macro level to actually remember that God created the world out of nothing and spoke into the darkness and said, let there be light. To remember that he called Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and gave them promises to remember that he rescued Israel out of Egypt and, and bore with them patiently and faithfully in spite of our unfaithfulness for centuries and millennia as God's people to remember that even in exile brought on by our own sin in God's judgment that God did not abandon us did not give up on us but sent us prophets and, and sent the people of God um, his spirit and was faithful and brought them back from exile. And of course, ultimately for us as Christians to reflect on and to remember the life, the death, 
the resurrection of Jesus, the pouring out of the Spirit when he ascends to God's right hand um, at Pentecost, and, and then the, uh, the, the mission of the church. And for over 2,000 years, church history, which in so many ways is our family tree, even more so than our own biological families are as Christians. And, and one of the things we need to do is regularly remember what has happened. God's faithfulness, our own unfaithfulness often, but especially God's goodness, God's commitment to the world, commitment to his people, and to remember this. And one of the things that happens when you have a good, strong, accurate, faithful memory as a Christian is you come back into the present you land back into the here and now, and you begin looking around. And I think, especially as you do this regularly, you begin noticing that everything looks a bit different than it did before you remembered. It looks a bit different and it feels a bit different than when you were forgetting everything that had happened in history that God has done for the world and for his people before five minutes ago. And when we live our lives in these short, tight boxes of 10 minutes before now, 10 minutes ahead of us, or maybe just the uncertainty of the future, is our perception of reality not only becomes truncated, it becomes distorted, and our emotions, our behavior, our perceptions end up becoming incredibly unhealthy. And so the book of Ezra reminds us we need to be a people with a strong, vivid, accurate memory, and we need to regularly make sure that whoever we are today and whatever strategies, whatever mission we're embarking on, there needs to be continuity with what the people of God have always been and what they've always been called to. So that's the first point, remembering the past. The second one is this, if there's anything in the book of Ezra, and there's probably a lot, that's not only strange to us, but maybe even disorienting, and to be honest, even for us as Christians, maybe a bit offensive, is in the second half of the book, there's a really big emphasis in chapter 7 through 10 on what you might call purity or separation um, of maintaining a really intentional, strict sense of boundaries between the people of God and everyone else in the world. And, and specifically, there's this big kind of lament over the fact that so many people um, among Israel have intermarried with pagan peoples in the years and decades of the exile, and not only intermarried with them and had children with them, but begun, it, pretty clearly, to practice their idolatry, to be formed by their habits of injustice and evil, that what's normal to them to the world has begun to become normal for God's people, what should be normal for us, faithfulness to God's law, faithfulness to God's commandments, now looks abnormal and strange, which again is, is a great parable, a great metaphor for, for us today as the church, so enculturated, um, so kind of contextualized and overwhelmed by our own cultural values and perceptions. And we often look much more, whether we're conservative or liberal, we often look much more like everybody else in our culture, whether conservative or liberal, than we do Jesus, than we do the body of Christ. And Ezra 7 through 10 is zealous for calling the people of God to be different calling the people of God to be pure, calling the people of God not to be like all the peoples around them. And again, this, this emphasis on holiness, this emphasis on non-conformity, this emphasis not just in Ezra, not even just in the Old Testament, but throughout Scripture, to not be like the cultures that we're a part of in, in significant ways, it can often come across as, as self-righteous 
can often come across as is kind of a killjoy, come across as kind of like fear-mongering or a sense of superiority towards everybody else. And, and here, I think, is the crucial thing. There, there's lots of things to talk about with this another time, but here's the crucial thing I, I think we need to understand about this theme. There is an understanding, we'll, we'll end here in just a minute coming back to this theme, but there is an understanding that in the midst of all the rising and falling of empires, all the politics and all the um, ups and downs of history, both back then and today, that the most crucial thing at any given moment in history is the mission that God has given his own people. That what really matters in the world is not what's happening in Persia or Babylon or Egypt or Rome, not what's going to happen in the election in November in the United States of America, not what's going to happen in Europe, not what's going to happen in any other powerful political economic nation right now. But the million dollar question is, are the people of God faithfully engaging in and embodying the mission that God has given them in the world? And the book of Ezra realizes, like I think all of scripture does, that we cannot faithfully love our neighbors we cannot be faithful to the mission that God has given us to the world unless we are profoundly different from the world we are sent into. And so all of the emphasis on Ezra, on being different from the nations that we live in, being different from the peoples and the cultures that we are in the midst of, is ultimately because we are being called to be different from the world precisely for the sake of the world. And so as we read the book of Ezra, we remember that there's, again, a temptation to think, man, if only politicians would get their act together, if only this ideological group over here, or this cultural group over here, this race or this ethnicity or this kind of community over here would get their act together, then everything would go back to normal. And that's not to say that there isn't real injustice in the world, that politics doesn't matter, that nations don't matter. It all does matter. It's not to diminish that in the reality and even the importance of it. It is to exalt instead the reality that the million dollar question, to, to quote First Peter, maybe the great exile book in the, in the New Testament, that judgment always begins with the household of God. And that the central thing that matters is whether we are returning to God in repentance, whether we are waking up from the same kind of hypocrisy and evil and injustice we see in the world and the nation and the people around us, or whether we just continue to be more of the same whether we just look like and act like everybody else, whether on the left or on the right, whether in this group or in that group, this ideology, that ideology, that the book of Ezra realizes that for us to love the world well, we must first be different from the world. And different, not just in eccentric, weird, bizarre ways, but different in reflecting God's image as revealed in the scriptures, in his law, in his commandments. And so... Um, again, this is not um, some kind of racist or superior, superiority judgment against the other peoples. There's even the claim in Ezra 6, verse 21, which I think is a huge kind of um, reminder of what this is really about, is that not only was all of this blessing in this season, all of these commands and calls for the people of Israel who had returned from exile, but also for everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleannesses of the peoples of the land to worship 
the Lord, the God of Israel, that this is not saying that you need to be ethnically Jewish or that some race is better than others, some culture is better than others. It's a reminder that whether you're an outsider to the people of God, whether at this moment in history you're born ethnically into the people of Israel, that what matters is knowing and responding to and being faithful to who God is and what he's called us to be, rather than adopting the customs, the idolatrous practices, the unjust habits of the culture around us. And again, I don't need to belabor the point, but both on the left and the right in our culture, there are obvious commitments to idolatry, to injustice and to sin. And in both directions, there needs to be a strong reminder, we cannot be like that. We must be different from what we see outside of the church. And one of, not the only, but one of the great tragedies for quite a while in our culture is that the church tends to just reflect the mainstream realities, whether on the left or on the right, and then just put Jesus at the end of the sentence. And we need to be profoundly different from both the left and the right, from all the different alternatives that we see in the world because none of it fully reflects and all of it is deeply incongruous with at times even though at other times there are real insights and real virtues there but nonetheless deeply incongruous with and inconsistent with who god is and what he's called his people to be and so second thing again that ezra calls us to be different from the world precisely for the sake of the world. And so this book is about renewal within the people of God, not reshuffling the chairs in Persia's government. That, not that that doesn't matter, but ultimately that's not the heart of the story. Third and finally, and this is uh, just something I'm gonna do really briefly, but one of the things, especially, it's always true for all of us historically, not just as God's people, but um, just as human beings, but there's often a sense of being out of control in a season like this. I'm just feeling like we have so little agency, feeling like, like, man, if I could just grab onto a little more kind of control, a little more power, a little more authority, um, I would just feel safer at night. I would just feel a little more secure. And one of the directions that we tend to shuffle that nervous energy is into politics or into economics, that if we could just control what other people are doing, if we could just control the society, the structure around us, we would be more in charge, our future would be more certain. And the book of Ezra reminds us that even when the people of God are utterly on the margins, even when we have no control over what's going to happen with whether schools are going to reopen in the months to come and stay open, whether the economy is going to collapse or rebound or go up and down for a long time, who's going to win the next election and how that person and that administration will behave and govern. There are so many things we do not control as God's people. And our response to that can often be and often has been to compromise our faith in order to get into the seat of power, or at least what we think is the seat of power. And throughout the book of Ezra, there are these constant reminders that apart from God's people, even often in spite of God's people, that even though we are not in control, it's actually not Persia that's in control. It's actually not the Republicans or the Democrats that are in control. It is actually the God of creation, of redemption, the God of Israel, the God who raised Jesus from the dead, who even though it's so often mysterious and behind the scenes and can only be understood retrospectively, that nonetheless he is in control. So real quick, chapter 1, verse 1 of Ezra, that not only does Cyrus, king of Persia, strangely, 
unexpectedly let Israel go home, rebuild their temple, but even kind of fund it through his own treasury. But there's the reminder that this happened because the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. In chapter 6, verse 22, we're told this. They kept the feast of the unleavened bread seven days with joy, the Passover. Why? Because the Lord had made them joyful, and he had also turned the heart of the king of Assyria towards them, so that he, the king of Assyria, sorry, yeah, the king of Assyria, aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Chapter 7, verse 27, says this. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this into the heart of the pagan king to beautify and restore the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who, from ultimately from God, but nonetheless indirectly through the heart of the king, which has been turned providentially by God towards us, he has extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors in this place that we are still in exile in. And then finally, chapter 9, verse 9, For we are still slaves, and yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but he's extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God. And so just real quick, this is how I would put it, that that a deep trust in God's mysterious, hidden, but nonetheless real providence, to use the old word that, that Christians and Jews have used, that, that even though it's not through us as God's people, even though we are still on the margins and not the ones in power, that nonetheless God still rules history and turns it, bends it, shapes it in the directions that reflect where he is taking it. That doesn't mean there's not evil. That doesn't mean that everything that happens is God's will in some simple way. That's not true. But nonetheless, even though we are not in control, and to be honest, we never are, and we never will be, we can trust that God is in control. Ezra, like all the post-exilic books, like Nehemiah, Esther, and so many always emphasize this, that God is working behind the scenes, even through people who are actively opposed to him, and we can trust him. And so the doctrine of providence, the, the reminder that God is in control, should lead to patience, it should lead to a sense of security and freedom, and it should be a bulwark in our lives against the temptation to compromise in order to sell our soul um, to politicians, to leaders who are utterly corrupt, who are deeply incongruous with the character of God in order to have a seat at the table. Christians have done that often, and I don't need to remind you guys that we've done it recently too. And that's not to say jump to the other side or anything like that. It's just to say our sense of security is independent 100% of what is going on in society around us. And again, that's not to say it doesn't matter, but it is to say, even if we can't connect the dots right now, we can trust that God is in control. And so God's providence should lead to our patience and a deep sense of our freedom. I'm just going to wrap up with uh, with this uh, over the next 60 seconds. Underneath everything I've said today, and I already hinted at this a, a couple of minutes ago, but I really want to end with this, is a core assumption that's never explicitly articulated in the book of Ezra, but I think without it, nothing that happens in Ezra makes sense, and without which I think we deeply misunderstand the entire scope of the biblical story, our own identity, our own mission, 
as Christians, as the body of Christ, and in light of which everything else in Scripture, everything else in the Christian life begins to make a little more sense. And this is the core assumption, which is that at any given moment in history, what really matters, the center focus of what God is doing, uh, of, of that's kind of... Um, foundational to whether his purposes move forward or whether they continue to be frustrated is not do the political secular rulers reflect God's will and acknowledge him. It's not does the culture around us like us or look like God's purposes. It's always this. It's not outside of the people of God where the main focus is. It's within the people of God. Are we getting back on track to be faithful or are we continuing the long track record of being as hypocritical, as broken, as compromised, as unjust as everything else we see in the world. And at the end of the day, even in November when we go to vote again, even in a season of crisis with COVID-19, the most important question in the universe, a subset of it, I'll start with this, is at Trinity Heights, up there in Morningside Heights in West Manhattan, a church that will never probably be on the front page of the New York Times because most churches don't get on the front pages of the New York Times, is faithfulness to Jesus growing or is unfaithfulness to his calling continuing to reign as it so often has in the people of God historically? Are we being faithful or unfaithful to the call of Jesus to reflect God's image and to love our neighbors well? Or are we just mimicking and conforming to everybody else? That is always the question. Even in exile, it's the people on the margins who are homeless, but who remember this hope and who have this promise moving forward and who are called to be different from the world for the sake of the world. It's ultimately what's happening within the body of Christ that is infinitely more important than anything that is happening outside of the body of Christ. Not because we are more important than the world, not because God loves us more than the world, but because what God wants to do in the rest of the world in the future hinges on whether we are being faithful, hinges on whether we are responding and growing and being restored and repenting and being renewed and whether we're looking more like Jesus. And so as we think about 30 years from now, 300 years from now, are we being faithful to the story that will still be happening? Are we passing down to our children and to those that come to faith in Christ in our communities the story of what it means to be God's people and what it means to be faithful to that? Um, and that's ultimately what the book of Ezra is about. Even before the exile is fully over, already we can um, be confident that God is at work and that our faithfulness or our unfaithfulness matters. And it ultimately matters more than anything that is going on outside of the people of God. Let me pray for us. Um, Father, thank you for Trinity Heights. Even having to speak into a computer screen from a distance, even having to not be able to be there in person, um, I am thankful for the opportunity um, to be with them in spirit um, this morning. And I do pray that you would help us to learn, to understand, and ultimately to respond to, um, yeah, just what it is that you um, intend to teach us through the book of Ezra. And even next week, the book of Nehemiah, I pray that you would help us to be a people who remember our past and who walk in continuity with those who have been faithful in the people of God 
for thousands and thousands of years before us in lots of other crises, in lots of other cultural moments, and to not be like those who have come before us in the people of God who have been unfaithful, um, who have been hypocritical, who have been part of the problem rather than part of the solution. I also pray that you would help us to be different from the world precisely for the sake of the world, and I pray that you would give us a deep trust and a deep confidence that even though we are not in charge, that nonetheless you are, and we can trust you as our Father and as our King, and be patient and not have to engage in manipulation and coercion and even violence in order to defend your honor, to protect ourselves, or to make a difference in the world. Help us to become much more comfortable on the margins, much more comfortable without power than we have tended to be as a people, um, as Christians in this country for quite a while, and, and help us to have a deep sense of your providence and your goodness and your wisdom and your power so that we can give up power as we trust you, and help us ultimately to be faithful to the gospel and to the mission of the church. And we pray that whatever happens in the election this November, however much longer COVID-19 lasts, whatever happens with the economy in the months and years to come, we pray that the faithfulness of the body of Christ would grow in this season not just at Trinity Heights, not just in the United States of America or New York City, but around the world, that this would be a season of purification and renewal, that this would be a season where on the other side of it, we all look a lot more like Jesus than we did before this crisis started. And we pray that that would be where our focus would be. Um, and we ask all of that in Jesus' name and give you thanks in his name as well. Amen.